Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space, wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi there, I'm Toshi and welcome back to Sex in Space. We're here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. I hope everyone out there is doing brilliantly. We're excited to have you with us today, whether you're listening in for the first time or you're a frequent traveller of our intergalactic adventures. So thanks so much for being with us, wherever it is that you're tuning in from. Please don't forget to show your support by liking, rating and subscribing. Your feedback means the world to us. Check out our TikTok and Instagram for more great sex and space content. Just check for us using our handle at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace.com. We always love to hear from our listeners and engaging with our community, so please feel free to reach out in any way you like. Now let's jump into an awesome interview. For this episode, Jane was lucky enough to speak with Justin Hancock, and I'll let her do the honours of introducing him. Without further ado, let's get into it. Today, um, I'm joined by Justin Hancock. And Justin is a sex and relationships educator, writer and advice giver for young people, adults and teachers and practitioners in the field. A qualified youth worker, sexual health trainer, who's been working in sex and relationships education for around 25 years, which is pretty impressive. It's made him one of the leading experts in the field. And he's created some amazing resources you do need to know about, and we will be talking about them today. So... Justin. Thank you for having me, Jane. It's <laughs> such a pleasure. So the, um, the the resource that brought you to our attention um, was basically um, the Bish UK mm-hmm. website. That kind of took me on the journey of realising that you do, there's a layers and layers and layers to what you do, and it's a giant project. So what I want to do is start by saying, how did you get into this in the first place? In, it's doing BISH or sex education generally. Generally, yeah. What it off? Yeah, so I've got a youth work background. So um, I did a degree in law, strangely. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, I was doing youth work whenever I went back home. And I was increasingly finding law very boring and didn't see myself as having a career in it. There are quite a few barriers to doing that as well from like a kind of working class background so you can get a degree but then I found it very hard to you know get job placements and then to get enthusiastic about being a lawyer but I was working in youth work whenever I came back home and I thought okay well this is much more fun and also not I didn't I don't want to sound like one of those kind of worthwhile people saying I wanted to do something really worthwhile I just really enjoyed it and it was really good just to have that those kinds of working relationships. I was working a lot with young men in particular as part of my training. I was specifically working around tackling things like sexism and homophobia and racism with young men. Then a job came up working with young men around sex and relationships. I knew nothing at all about <laughs> sex ed. Any you know, my sex ed was as probably bad as most people listen to this podcast when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. quite embarrassing how little I knew at the time 
but just kind of learned on the job, had some excellent training. And uh, over the years, I moved from, I so I got trained by the local authority where I was living, Derby City Council, and then I moved down to London, worked for Brooke for a few years. And then uh, I was trained by the Sheffield Centre for HIV and Sexual Health in, in uh, sexual health training back in 2003. And um, yeah, I've been doing it for all that time. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, so that's sort of a, a kind of sideways in. When did you suddenly go, oh, sexual health is my field? <laughs> I think actually um, around 2000, 2001, when the first projects that I was working on were really taking off, I was delivering, I was trying to get more. So my first big project was trying to get more young men to use condoms. So, and to get young men into sexual health services and to get them more interested in using condoms. And it took quite a few months for that to, before that really started taking off. But you, what I learned was you need word of mouth to spread. Mm. You need enough young men coming in and checking it out and making sure that it's all okay and legit. And um, eventually it did. And then when all these young men were coming in, so I remember the, the, there was a group of lads who who would take a bus into town just to come and see me on a Friday afternoon to get some condoms, but also they wanted to ask questions, find out about relationships and sexuality. I was kind of developing like an informal program using leaflets that I was creating at the time. And uh, I guess later that would go on to become BISH. And um, every week they would come in. They would come in for like eight weeks, and it would be a 16-mile round journey on the bus to come and see me. And they were bringing more young people each time with them. And I was thinking, they really, really want this. Yeah. And if they're, if they're that committed, if these lads are that committed, other lads must be equally committed. It's just about providing young men with the things that they want. I think this is generally true of young people generally and people generally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> providing excellent services that they want, responding to their questions, yeah. but also setting the right vibe and making it feel okay and making us feel as easy and as comfortable to access a service or to take part in RSE or whatever. And I guess it was from that moment I thought, this is this feels like it's something that I can do and therefore I want to keep doing it and want to be as good as possible at doing this. That's so cool. And so then to now, even that 20-year moment, you know, is has described extraordinary change particularly with technologies and what's available to young people can you kind of describe for me the arc of change that you've experienced in the field or over that time yeah i mean some things have changed and some things really haven't mm-hmm. i think that there's a lot more anxiety about things generally and i think a lot of that is because there is a lot more what i would call discourse well not what i would call what foucault would call discourse um or what i would call should stories about sex and relationships and there's more of that because there's more media and there's more of that particularly because there's more social media and i think that's opened up some things and really closed some things down and i think for a lot of uh young people generally it's created a lot of anxiety and so it's my work has gone from working with young people who didn't know anything at all, but kind of knew that there were things they didn't know and knew that they wanted to know some things and wanted a space to check things out, to now being young people being so bombarded with 
discursive messages about how they should be doing relationships and sex and sexuality, gender and their relationship with themselves, that I have to kind of unpack all of that. That A lot of my job is unpacking all of that mm. and trying to resource young people via their body. So, you know, a lot of the work I do is taking this kind of affective approach, um, the, you know, uh, which is very popular uh, now, but I think it's popular because it's good, it works, uh, to take this kind of affective turn and to try to relocate young people back into their bodies rather than just being this kind of set of stories about how their body should work. I think that's the, the single biggest change. Um, a lot of people think that, uh, that pornography has been a huge part of that and that pornography has really changed things. I'm not sure it really has. If there's one change that I've noticed is that from young men back in the day before hardcore pornography was even legal in the UK, let alone easily accessed via online sources, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to hear from young men, I don't care if she's enjoying it, as long as I'm enjoying it, it's fine. Right. And now I'm much more likely to hear, well, I haven't heard that for, well, I haven't heard that for over 20 years. I'm now much more likely to hear, how can I make a come, Justin? Like, how can I be good in bed? How can I last longer? Um, you know, uh, and also how to how can I how can I do consent? And I think that's something which has really really shifted. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's down to pornography. In fact, I don't try to pin single things down to pornography. I don't think anything has like a simple cause and effect in that way. Um, I think it's an entanglement of factors. But I think that's one kind of key difference. I, I would uh, I would put my finger on. Mm. The consent one, I mean, we might as well jump there. I was going to go there in a bit, but that, that is new. How do you talk to young people? And I think probably for parents um, who, who listen to this, how do you start to have conversations around consent without it sounding over earnest or abstract? Well, in person, I found a big change there. So when I used to start teaching about consent, um, everybody was like, Okay, sounds good, because I'd be framing it as, well, I'm going to teach you how to have consensual sex. Mm. This is how we do it. So, you know, like this is these are the kinds of conversations, the kinds of things to look out for. But now that excitement's been replaced by a, uh, not yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. And that's entirely because of discourse. It's entirely because young people have been told for quite a few years now, consent's really important have to get it you have to seek permission from somebody it's this socio-legal kind of uh paradigm of consent which has seeped into sex and relationships education in ways that are not only unhelpful but are actively causing harm and actually making my job much much harder it reifies the idea or re retells the idea that men are meant to, meant to be active uh Participants actively pursuing sex, seeking um, consent, seeking permission from women who are meant to be the you know the passive gatekeepers of sex and sexuality and pleasure. So the young men hate it. The young women, the young women hate it. Anyone who isn't straight absolutely hates it. Um, Non-binary folk hate it. You know they all hate it. And so I have to not only take. I used to have to take students from naught to sixty in a short space of time because generally speaking, you know, I only get one lesson when I'm working in person. Mm. But now I have to kind of take them from like minus 30 to 60. You know, I have to kind of get them on side at the beginning by saying, look, I'm not here to lecture you. 
I'm here to, to provide you with some resources that might help you. So I use the, I, I developed the handshake activity where we learn about how we might do consent by going through various handshakes. So, um, and non the, so I won't go into too much detail about this. I've got, this is written up at my website, bishtraining.com, and it's in my, it's also, uh, it's available for free there, but it's also available in my consent teaching pack. But I find that using um, an activity where young people get to actually feel what consent feels like, like to actually experience it in their bodies. Yeah is super useful and that's what RSE has to do it has to bring us back to the body and it has to stop these oversimplifying uh very basic patronizing um stories about sex and relationships that young people don't find helpful and for me I I try to talk the talk and walk the walk if I don't find it helpful if I don't think in my own personal life if I don't think I'd find it useful I wouldn't use it right and this kind of this kind of um, handing off of the anxieties, this kind of passing over, it's kind of like a cosmic game of pass the parcel. Uh, that for for a lot of people, this stuff is the, the kind of the attitude team often is from a lot of educators seems to be, well, I've got this all sorted, so honestly, I don't need to know about this. But I worry about these people over here, right. usually people with less social capital, um, and and so and so that means that I have to go over there and tell these people how they should do it whilst not, you know, whilst not even having a moment of reflexivity uh, about my own practice. So I try to really, that's, that's a kind of a kind of a guiding principle for everything that I do, both at the website, but also in person and on training is that it's got to be a resource. Everyone's got to feel resourced by the end of it, rather than talked at or um, given a set of stories. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you raise about consent and the way that it's framed um, a lot of the time. Um, I hadn't, I, I don't think I've had anybody talk about it in quite that way before, but I think that's a very important message for people listening. Yeah, I mean, I've written a book about it as well. Can we talk about consent? So getting all my plugs in. Um, yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> well, and the thing is, as you can probably tell, and as you can probably tell, I try to be dispassionate about my job. I try to think of it as a job. And I just, it's a job that I try to be good at. And I try to be, I think, we deprofessionalize RSE by making it only about people who are passionate about what they do. I do this because I want to be good at it and I can see what doing it well can really do. But as you can tell, I do get really passionate about it, particularly when it's done really badly. Because when it's done badly, it just it it just lets the young people down like so much. And actually, it's easier to give young people a resource and the and to make it as easy as possible for them to to take part in the activity, to take part in uh, in in uh, in this kind of resourceful way. So it's actually easier to do it better than it is to do it poorly, and as well as it just being incredibly useful for everyone concerned. It just yeah makes me quite cross. Yeah, yeah. Now your passion does shine through even when you're <laughs> in the written space. I, I'll come to that because it's um, there was some interesting um, passion in your blogs. Um, so in terms of the BISH um, side, obviously that was the culmination of a lot of work. Talk, talk to people about what that is, who it's for, how to use it. Yeah, so I, the work I was doing up in Derby that I was talk, talking about before, getting young men into sexual health services, I was doing down here in London when I moved down here. And all the young men and young women were coming in with... And the, 
coming in with smartphones. Blackberries, actually, back in the day, that was the, that was the one they were using. Uh, they'd have two: one for one for business or Wi-Fi, and then one for um, fun and like non-Wi-Fi. Um, I, I love working with those guys. I miss working with them so much. Um, they were a lot of fun. It's often very naughty. Um, so they were coming with smartphones, and I was giving them leaflets. So I've been developing these leaflets over many years that I'd started working on in the early 2000s. I was giving them like printed leaflets with lots of topics related, you know, some related to safe sex, but some related to consent, some related to how to actually enjoy it, some related to bodies and um, how bodies work and, and relationships and things like that. And so eventually I thought, well, I'm going to put these leaflets on our website. So I found out about a about blogging, um, and very slowly I kind of started to upload some of these leaflets on there, and then to give uh, give young people the 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 URL, you know, and that's basically how it worked. And that was kind of around 2010. I started doing that, maybe a bit before, but I did it very very slowly. But then I started to kind of really work on it much more um, from 2011, 2012 onwards. Um, I was sponsored for a bit by uh, possibly the world's most famous condom manufacturers, but they don't sponsor me anymore. For... I read that, yes. Yeah, we can get into that at another time if you'd like. I'd like to get into that a little bit. All right. Um, so they did sponsor it, which meant that I could spend two days a week on it, which I did. Right. So a lot of what you can see on there is from the time when I was treating it as a part-time job. Um and now I can't spend as much time on it, sadly, because I don't have the funding. It's crowdfunded. Um, again, funding is like a, a it's a pertinent issue. I think that we could talk about. Mm. But um, I try to spend at least half a day. I'm funded to spend through my Patreon. I'm funded to spend half a day on it a week, but I right. spend more than that on it. The other thing I'm doing, actually, I should probably mention, I've not really mentioned this in public yet, is that I'm actually doing a PhD about it now. I've just started. Okay. I am a PhD candidate. So um, I'm using BISH as a case study. So, um, But that's not really working on BISH. That's working on an independent research about BISH. So, yeah. The politics of sex ed. When, when you look at it uh, uh, and you look at the stats, rising... Mm. STIs, rising unplanned pregnancies, all, all of the things that tell us that our young people aren't educated adequately around sex. And yet there's just not the investment or the prioritising of it. And in mm. fact, quite the opposite. There's mm. been um, a, a pushback in mm. the field. Um, what is it that might be effective to start to shift things back the other way to, to push the diet, the needle a bit it is about money first and foremost it's about resources and um it's about money where this is a huge topic i have a, i've written a at my website i've written my website for practitioners bishtraining.com i've written a blog about this called um the state of rse in the uk which gives a history of this dear listener if you want like a a long read about this it's kind of slightly also ethnographic but i think that it's about money and structures so the you know the the local authority where i trained as a youth worker uh i was part of their specialist youth work team delivering all that stuff the project where young men were traveling for 16 miles on a bus after school on a friday afternoon 
was part of their specialist youth work team doing specialist outreach projects. Not only does the specialist youth work team not exist, the youth service doesn't exist. Right. That's just gone. So, which is tragic for young people. It's tragic for communities in which the youth services were working, like really tragic. And I think we've really, really missed that. And it's only really now that people um, are talking about how tragic that was. This happened as, as a result of the 2010 cuts, the austerity cuts uh, that happened in the UK under the coalition and then the Tories after that. Youth services were a bit under threat before that anyway, for other reasons. But yeah, so I'm talking about money, but also structures. And it's about having this kind of level of expertise, which we really need. So back in the day, before RSE became mandatory in the UK, which I actually think was a really bad idea, one of the few sex educators who thinks mandatory RSE is a really bad idea, but we can talk about that later if you want. But um, before it became mandatory a couple of years ago, back in the day when there was funding and when there were youth services, the approach was, okay, we need to try to get into this school. Let's, has anyone got into this school? Has anyone got a contact for this school? So there were so many local services that were trying to get into schools, a combination of youth services, but also sexual health outreach services, to get into school, to help schools to, to deliver their RSE, but also to link young people to the services right. uh, locally. And they would get this for free. They would get all this free support. In fact, we'd be banging on their door saying, let us give you free support. Give us right. room in the timetable. And now... It's, you know, I'll get an email from a school who don't have anywhere locally. They found out about me on a website or they heard me on the radio or someone sent them an email or something um, asking me to come in. And then I say, well, I cost this much. And they're like, oh, OK, well, we can afford you to come in for this. And, and that's it. So they don't have the free support. They don't have people banging on the door and they don't have to pay. They don't have to pay for it. So that is a huge change. And quite frankly, um, we're going to have to move mountains to to overcome that the 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 cuts and the devastation that austerity politics have caused in this arena but also just in terms of online stuff like of course even if we had really great rc happening in schools we need really good online rc as well websites like mine but there are huge funding challenges around that massive of course I don't want to speak for charities, but so I'm just going to speak gently and just kind of euphemistically. You know, charities often say to me that they can't do what I can do mm. because they get, might get into trouble with their funders or they might perceive that they'd get into trouble with their funders. So where I can quite happily talk about, well, here's how we might make sex more pleasurable or, uh, you know, uh, to quite easily to talk about, you know, why we need uh, trans-inclusive RSE or to deliver trans-inclusive uh, um, RSE myself, you know, I just think that's that's what we do. That's, that's what it is. I don't have to deal with any of those anxieties around funding um, from the charities might have to face. But the other sources of um, online sexuality education, their primary focus isn't to resource people going to their websites. Their primary focus is to score in Google rank. So one of my main competitors in Google rank are fertility tracker apps who have, through very good search engine optimization, managed to rank really, really well for some of the terms that young people are searching for to find my website. Right. And 
you know, the content's crap, but they score highly because they know how to kind of game the system. They've got people there who are SEO copywriters, yeah. like copywriters for Google, rather than writers, educators for yeah. the end user. Yeah. But also there's the manosphere. So um, uh, alt-right kind of places online where they give an awful lot of relationships and sexuality advice to young men who are, are not served by that advice. They don't want to resource those young men with useful kind of um, with uh, with useful tips and helpful guidance and and uh, ac- activities for reflection. They want to tell young men how they should be more like an archetypal man, mm-hmm. uh, which is deeply problematic. And pornographers are now doing. I'm saying pornographers like I despise pornographers I sound like Mary Whitehouse like people doing pornography like porn porn websites are now getting in on this as well and doing sex ed and some of them doing a good job but again uh let's say you know they're competing with me I suppose so for educators who are delivering stuff online the funding issue is a challenge so if there's more funding for all of this that would be good Part of what I hope comes out of my PhD is that it would lead to a uh it would lead to a greater knowledge in the field about what we should be doing mm. about the kinds of quality standards maybe might lead to a kind of quality standards kind of uh kind of thing uh but also might kind of put it more on the map generally within the research community um but yeah all all round the lack of funding for this has created an issue and i sometimes ask myself well ask myself well why is this yeah. I think it comes down to it's our own sex ed. It's our, it's it's the common sense messages we received about relationships and sexuality education. You know, I count myself as being a person on the left. I my project is a leftist project in many ways, and um, I try to be a comrade. Uh, but the left don't care about this topic at all because what have they been taught about sexuality and relationships? education what was their sex ed like well it taught them that sex is this very very narrow set of things and that it's meant to be unpleasurable but also that it's awkward and that we're not supposed to talk about it and so that becomes the common sense that then becomes handed down when i say common sense i'm using that in the Gramscian term like the uh the set of stories that we're, we're led to believe about sex reveal this kind of uh this kind of imminent nature of humans and sexuality that's meant to be tricky to talk about it's not absolute bollock it's just what we've been taught to think you know speak to someone who who grew up in the netherlands like someone who grows up in the netherlands can talk about sex and relationships like they could like talk about any other topic in fact they talk about it in a way which is so blase and matter of fact that they're almost bored by the topic okay it's it's a cultural it's specifically uh, a culturally um handed down uh intergenerational thing and so i think go on sorry jane so just to finish that point so i think this also is part of the uh like assemblage of why it is that it's not advocated for so it's not advocated for which means that we have few advocates so when the right wing come for my um for my work i don't get anyone standing up for me on the left i get very few people standing up for me generally but um outside of sex education um because of what they're taught, which means that it's harder to attract funding. It's harder to make the case for what we're doing with funders uh, because they don't know what good looks like, quite frankly. 
I mean, uh, you know, one of my questions was going to be, what are some of the big challenges to offering a good sex education? But you've just done a nice unpacking of them. And I think, I mean, from our end, one of the, the key spaces of conversation for us is with parents. Yeah. Who seek to try to create awareness that particularly parents of young children, hmm. that they really need to get engaged with the fact that this is the equivalent of saying, sorry, your, your children aren't allowed to do any PE. Yeah. You know, it's just not, not in their best interest for us to get them physical. Like, what? Yeah. Um, I think parents have the same anxieties that I was talking about that young people have. You know, it's the, the there are all these discourses flying around about, you know, saying the right thing or what will it lead to or, you know, who am I, you know, questioning what it is to be a, a parent almost talking about this. I should say this point, I'm not a parent. Um, um, so, but um, sure, I can understand why everyone is anxious about it. But when we understand that our anxieties come from our own sex ed, that's basically where they started. Yeah. And if we were taught something else, I think we'd feel less anxious. Yeah, I feel like, you know, maybe, and I'm such a Pollyanna, but it, that at least with parents, they've got to an age and stage where they've got enough experience to understand that maybe that could be part of the problem. And so there's a little more receptivity there than um, going s sort of straight into the political sphere or into yeah. bases of governance. Um, but but I, I I'm going to go to your um, blog, which you mentioned, which I, you know, clearly there's a, a left-right conversation going on in your work. Um, and one of the things that that threw up for me is whether there's a way to evaluate politicians on the basis of their attitudes enough like do we have a framework of assessment for who we're voting for to go what are your values around xyz sex education or um you know um social support or i mean is there such a thing i mean there is i mean in the uk there is this they vote for you website um but it's interesting because i think this is you know the quadrant of uh, left wing, right wing, economically, and then authoritarian, libertarian. You know the matrix that I'm talking about. So this is very much a kind of an all sex ed is kind of like an authoritarian, libertarian thing. And you get leftist authoritarians who really think sex ed is just rubbish. You do get, you know, quite transphobic, for example, left wingers. Yeah. Um, but you do get, you know, I've met some. Uh, I met a Tory MP once who's actually very pro sex ed because he's a liberal yeah um and the, and he saw it as being important and in the uk at the moment uh uh there have been several well no that's i may i'm about to make a petty point about tory politicians in the uk at the moment if you just google um uh, sexual offences and Tory MPs or oh. Tory MPs being kicked out of the Commons uh, or Tory MPs losing the whip, you'll probably see that there's probably a lot of calls for sex ed to happen with Tories. But I think that it's kind of, it's, it's, it's interesting politically. Um, and so as a kind of a, a left liberal, um, I think that occupying that kind of bottom left-hand quadrant, if you're, dear listener, if you're familiar with the quadrant I'm talking about, if not, you can find it online. Um, I think it's an interesting space where I'm on the one hand saying, um, I'm saying, well, well, I'm saying liberal left things. One of the, one of the, a, a useful kind of, I suppose, uh, 
a useful kind of uh, hook for this is the stuff that I've written recently about porn. So I've written off the back of this really great Financial Times investigation into the porn industry. I wrote a couple of articles and also based off this brilliant book called Bodies of Work by Rebecca Saunders that I read for my podcast, which is an exceptionally good, complex, but exceptionally good book. So I wrote a couple of pieces for Bish about how capitalism and pornography have uh, are doing a number on us, basically. That it's not poured in and of itself, but it's the, it's how capitalism has uh, has captured porn and captured, in many ways, our desires in ways that um, that. In order to explain why it is that many young people, often young men, feel quite shitty about their relationship to porn, it's not so much about the porn, the pornographers, or the people in the porn. It's capitalism that's done it. Uh, that's kind of deliberately uh, invoking in them a sense of lack, uh, where they can never really feel satisfaction. And I'm talking here about, you know, I'm using a Deleuze Guattarian kind of analysis of capital where um, any kind of sense of lack is something which capital is kind of creating. And so, um, you know, obviously I've explained it. I've explained this in a way that a teenager can understand, hopefully. Uh, Although I think I do mention Deleuze and Guattari probably in the article, but, you know, towards the end. Um, I think that's kind of like an interesting, like, uh, left liberal kind of way of looking at it. I think it's really important because so many of the things that are causing anxiety in young people, that making people anxious about sex and relationships, are promulgated by, you know, platform capitalism, by, um, by platforms competing with each other to compete for our attention in the attention economy and making us feel shitty about ourselves. And, you know, if we just look at social media, for example. So I think it's really important that we, you know, for me, I think it's really important to bring in leftist arguments as well as liberal arguments uh, as a way of giving young people the resources to 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 see a way out of it, to, to come back to being in their bodies and to kind of reclaim their bodies from what capitalism does and in order to help them to become other and to be with their people in their lives and to uh to yeah to 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 yeah just to to become basically yeah it's an interesting uh, again an interesting framing uh, we we have a book coming out in the next couple of weeks on how to talk with your kids about porn mm, i saw that yeah and our attitude to it is um you know it, it, it like it's materials that are meant to be arousing aren't the problem it's it's what gets put into that space yeah. and the relationship that we have with that and so critical awareness and there's good stuff and then there's stuff that really is perpetuating problems and and significant social harms at times and yeah. the thing that triggered this whole project at the very beginning was me um, did you see that brilliant doco on the sex educator who was working in the school in the north years ago it, it must be about a 15 20 year old doco and she um, was from the Netherlands and there was a, uh, she was working with the six formers, kind of doing the equivalent of a, an O-level in sex. Oh, was that on Channel 4? Uh, yeah. There was a moment where she asked one of the young men, how do you know when sex is finished? And he looked down the spout and he went, it's when you come on her face, isn't it? And that was a defining moment for me because it's also standing in as a tool for education when there's mm. nothing else available. And so it's all of those arguments kind of mashing up and, and weaving through each other. Mm. 
that make it such an interesting space to to look at certainly but to again back to the poor old parent who's being terrorized by the media you know wh how do i start this what do i do how do i deal with it without alarming them yeah i mean i think for parents a really good activity dear listener if you're a parent is to think back to a time so let's let's assume that we've all had quite bad sex education but many some of us haven't but many of us have in my experience when i do training around this with teachers most of us have in fact almost everyone has <laughs> um but even though we've had not very good sex education as ill-equipped us and made us feel uncomfortable and awkward talking about sex we're all adults we've all probably had at least one vaguely useful conversation about sex and relationships in our lives what were you doing what what were the what were the, what were you doing that made that a useful conversation? And really try to bring it to mind, like in a really kind of lively way in your head, and try to take yourself back to that precise moment in time and think about the tiny things that you were both or all of you were doing that made that conversation just that little bit easier. So, a lot of people say that they were listening, but how did you know that you and the other person were listening? What were you doing? How are you? What were you doing with your bodies? What space were you in? Can you describe the, the vibe in a very vivid detail? What were you doing to add to that vibe? How did you know you felt safe enough? How did you know that trust was there? How did you know when to start the conversation? How did you know when to end? How did you feel comfortable enough talking about things that were giving you a sense of discomfort? But how did you know when you started to feel a little bit more comfortable or comfortable enough to say what you wanted to say? So really try to bring that to mind, write all of those things down and then think, OK, well, how can I bring more of this into my conversations with my kids? How can I create the vibe? How can I make it as easy as possible? How can I, that's what facilitation means. Uh, so how can I make this, how can I facilitate this? How can I make this as easy as possible? Yeah. Bearing in mind that it's not always easy, but how can we make it that little bit easier? So it's, um, as well as kind of paying attention to what's worked for you before, your own resources that you already have, you might also want to break it down into bite-sized chunks, kind of normalize the conversation, uh, pin your ears back, uh, and uh, be ready to bring up, to ask a useful question or a, an interesting or a challenging question. Uh, if you're watching TV or something comes up in the media, you could ask a really great question. Um, and the crucial thing is, and I know that Professor Alan McKees talked about this a lot and with, with colleagues and have written about this a lot, which is um, one of the things that comes up is when young people see, or particularly when children see a sexual image, they're mostly anxious about what their parents might think rather than anxious about the image of itself, which says to me that the really the most important, not message, but the most important, like, resource that we can give to children is the understanding that it's actually fine it's all just fine just come to us it's all right nothing bad's going to happen let's talk about it mm. and it's awkward it might feel awkward but locate where awkwardness feels and when we feel awkward in other aspects of our lives what do we do to make ourselves feel that a 10 percent less awkward what do we do yeah and i think all of that stuff is where i'd start really and again it's like it is like coming back to the body what does the body do? How can we affect each other in ways where it's a bit easier? What you made me think of or what came into my head when you were talking was that lovely space where people are around a kitchen table having a cup of tea laughing yeah. together. 
as they explore that topic, which is uh, quite a feminine space of activity, yeah. to be fair. But um, it can be broader, and it's humor is a great way yeah. to just relax and to be chill. But the formal conversational idea that I grew up with, you know, we need mm. to talk about. No, we don't. <laughs> no, cringe. <laughs> They just want their parents to be able to have conversations with them. They just don't want formality, huh? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was uh, doing a training course the uh, day before yesterday, and, um, you know, the, the teachers were sitting around a small table playing this game that I have. Uh, uh, my favorite resource that I use at my website, uh, Talking Sex Ed. Um, and um, they were sitting around chatting for half an hour about se- chatting about sex and relationships, and they were kind of as a hubbub in the room. And I said afterwards, you know, you're all sitting around these small little tables. And it reminds me of people being at the pub and how, you know, which is, you know, it's a very UK thing, obviously. It's yeah. like, and um, uh, they're less, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're less full of men as they, as they used to be back in the day, you know. Uh, but um, there's a real intimacy that you can have, even with a room full of people sitting on these small tables with each other. What do we do then when we're talking about our relationships or um, something which feels quite private? But, you know, the fact that we can talk about quite private things in such a public space, obviously maybe alcohol helps. Don't get your children drunk. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that. But but it's just thinking about when we're out with our adult friends, like what do we do in those moments that just make it make that conversation feel a bit easier is all I'm saying there really. Yeah. But the fact that we can do that in a pub demonstrates that we can do it. So today then, what do you find young people are worrying about most? What, what if, if I were a parent of a young person and I got to the point where they were already in their teens and I'm like, oh Lord, I've left this late. What mm-hmm. are they worrying about? What should I understand about their world right now? Well, they're not worried about anything that the media is telling you you should worry about. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many moral panics um, about young people and sex and relationships, and they're almost all invariably all wrong. So (laughs) so try and pay less attention to that. And it is more about kind of pinning your ears back and paying attention to, to what your kids might be saying or what young people might be saying generally. I don't think it's kind of easy to generalize around around a particular topic. Um, I think that it's a lot of it is the stuff that I've mentioned. A lot of it is that they are worried about the messages that they're being told, the should stories or the discourses. I think they're worried about, you know, am I, you know, am I being the uh, the uh, ideal sexual Athenian to think about Foucault, you know, for a moment, you know, thinking about whether um, they're doing it right, whether they are doing, being a man, right, or being uh, non-binary, right, or being a woman, right, you know, I think there's a lot of messages about gender that that people were finding tricky, we're all finding tricky. Um, With they do worry about consent, but I think that it's it's easier just to do consensual things rather than to talk about consent. So next time you're watching a TV show with your with your kids or with anyone, like figure out who holds the remote. You know, that's like a key consent question when yeah, you're figuring out what to watch. What are we in the mood for? What kind of genres take a fancy? Do we want something familiar or something entirely new? How are we going to watch it? Is it okay if one of us kind of, 
half watches it on our phone or can we watch something? Are we allowed to talk through it? Um, can we kind of hate watch something and take the piss uh, or do we have to just like seriously watch something? How long are we going to watch something for? And then when you have a break to go to the loo or to get some popcorn or to get some water or a cup of tea or whatever, check in with each other. You know, well, I was still up for this. I noticed you weren't laughing during the funny bits or I noticed you weren't really scared or you seemed a bit bored. We could do something else. And then really trying to pay attention to those feelings of what happens when you come together in ways that feel really good. All of this is consent work, all of it. And if you actually do it and kind of say, you know, remember when we were picking something to watch on TV the other day and how we kind of made it work. Basically, when you have sex, that's kind of what you got to do. It might be a bit trickier when it comes to sex, but basically you got to do all of that. Um, that's that's it. And so it's that kind of embodied experience. So I think for you know my my takeaway for parents or anyone working with young people is can you give people as best as you can the experience of it? Can you put it in their bodies? Can you give them the feeling of it? Like the, the actual, the, the embodied cognition is what I'm talking about here. That can you really make them like... Give them, not make them, give them the opportunity to really feel it. Yeah. That's way more important than a conversation or a set of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice. And so what are your goals for the future? Uh, albeit that you have said you're sometimes thinking you might do something completely different. Well, I've got to do the PhD now. So <laughs> um, I <laughs> I owe Nottingham Trent University 80,000 words on... Um, what else do sexuality education websites do? Um, that, and I'm going to keep plugging away on the website and running training courses. Cool. Uh, I've got an advanced training course that I've delivered a couple of times, uh, which I've really enjoyed doing. Uh, so I'll run a one, another one of those next year, I think. But other than that, I don't really plan beyond a year because I don't really usually know whether there's you know, every year I have to have like a, usually I have to have a bit of a reckoning over, is there enough work out there? Because I'm freelance. You know, is there enough work out there for me to keep doing this? Is it worth all of the the not very good stuff? Um, can I still make this a job, basically? Is this still a job? Yeah. So that's, um yeah, but I know that at least for three years I've got, that's not, a, that's not something I have to worry about that much, thankfully. And how can people support the work you're doing? You mentioned um, that it is possible. Let's make that clear for people if they come to your website. Yeah, well, if you're a sex educator, you could buy some resources at bishtraining.com. That would be awesome. Um, but also, there are lots of ways to support Bish, the website for young people. So uh, if you go to bishuk.com forward slash support, there's a whole load of things you can do on there. Like money is really useful. Like if, you know, if I... All I need is a thousand Patreon subscribers, and then I can get back to working on the on it for two days a week, basically. Like it would re replace all of the funding that the former that the a very famous condom manufacturer used to give me to put their logo on my website. Um, so if I can get a thousand, two thousand Patreon subscribers forever, then I can keep the website going forever, basically until I die or until I hand it over to someone or train someone up. So, parents, if you're going over to, to take a look at the website or um, sending your kids, which is a good idea, then um, treat it like Wikipedia and, and give something to the cause. Yeah, I give money to Wikipedia, yeah. yeah. But also um, good web links. So if you run a website, which is a, 
a health website or a government website or an education website, please, please, please give me a web link. So just say if you, you know, for example, for a good sex ed resource, go to this website because Google likes that. I know it's stupid, but Google really likes it. Google doesn't like it so much if you, if you, if porn folk, you know, porn, I've called you pornographers before, please, you know, disregard that. Many of my friends, uh, well, I've known like good colleagues who work in porn. I love you all very much. Um, but clicks from like clicks from porn websites aren't good. So if you can link from your social media, that would be ideal. Also got some posters on there that you can print out and put up in your schools or youth clubs. For It's aimed at everyone over 14, so in the spaces where young people are a little bit kind of older teenagers. Um, yeah, that's all the stuff you can do to support it. So not just money, but please money. And very briefly, because I'm conscious, you know, we, we, we could talk for a long time. Um, the, the, the condom maker, whose name shall not be mentioned if you if you don't want um that transition from supporting um basically supporting rse and rse initiatives and now having basically it feels like they've been slightly pushed out um Mm. by the the same voices that you were saying have had a go at you had a really good go at them yeah their activity yeah and it's that paradox of talking to young people about condoms at young ages 13 for example which is one of the big headliners and the fact that 13 year olds are often sexually active so yes mm-hmm. that's a good idea but they got chased out and now they've kind of gone i mean it seems overt perhaps to you and i but covert for a lot of people mm. is they've gone to league of legends online gaming right their sponsorship space so right. they're where young people are yeah um, they're just not doing it in a way that's going to get them beaten over the head for being there. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, I'm a good, you know, I'm a leftist, so, uh, you know, I've resented taking the money anyway, but it was really useful and I made use of it. But, you know, that's what has, that's how capital works. You know, at the end of the day, it's always about the bottom line. Mm. You know, there's a difference between capitalism and um, commercial activity and, you know, in in the in fully automated luxury gay space communism like or that <laughs> i'm striving for you know we'll still have like commercial activities and companies and things you know we'll still be able to buy sourdough bread if we want <laughs> as well as getting our state mandated bread loaf of bread every day that we get as you know the state gives us we can also go and buy you know a fancy sourdough if we wanted uh, if wanted to do something as bourgeois as that, but you know, but this is, <laughs> but, but you know, so we'll still have condom manufacturers, um, but um, perhaps they might. <laughs> so I'm talking really I'm doing I'm giving a thesis about uh, giving a lecture about post capitalism, but um, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So that's how I think it's basically how capital works, and I kind of get it. Like it, I don't think it was any one thing that caused them to stop sponsoring my website. It just is like well. If this is a bit too much hassle and we have to employ people who are going to handle this to really invest in this, we're going to really need to have people on board who are copywriters, who are experts, who can advise us, who can give us a steer on the kinds of things that we could could and should be saying, you know, then I get it, you know, and there's not a lot of margin in combo manufacture, I guess, you know, so... They think, well, sod it. And also, the same company who owned the condom manufacturer 
also owned, uh, COVID was part of it as well. They also owned several products that were very relevant to COVID. So I think that's part of it. But, you know, they're multinational companies, basically, at the end of the day. The people who should really sponsor my ones are people like, you know, um, Ben and Jerry's or someone like that. Uh, Yeah. 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 But they're owned by Unilever. So they probably have the same, they'll have the same issue. But. Well, yeah, not necessarily if it's if it's ice cream. <laughs> if there is a okay, so here's my pitch: if you are a big commercial company and you would like to sponsor a website visited by thousands of young people every day, I'm listening. Like I'm open. I'm I'm all ear, deaf and one ear. So I'm all ear. Um, please, uh, I do have two ears, but I can only hear out of one. I'm all ear. So please do feel free to come and fund me. Um, I'll be very nice about you. It's a really worthy cause because <laughs> without good sex education, the results are in. This isn't news for anybody. No. It's better outcomes for young people all round. And the Netherlands, again, are a good case in point for this. Yeah. And the poor outcomes across relationships, health, well-being, particularly within the queer community, yeah. are shocking. So. Yeah. Sponsors, this is a very good place. Investor money. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, it's been a complete pleasure, and we look forward to doing it again when you've got the PhD results. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of Justin and his work, head on over to justinhancock.co.uk. Before we sign off, we want to remind you that our book, The Organ Education Forgot, is now available both as a downloadable PDF and as a physical copy, so you can read it in whichever format you prefer. Both are available at sexandspace.com forward slash book. Please make sure to leave a like, follow, comment or review wherever you're tuning in from. Your support means the world to us. Until next time, safe travels and see you on the next episode.